Welcome to MedTech Speed to Data, a KeyTech podcast. I'm your host, Andy Rogers, VP of Business Development at KeyTech. Each month, me and a KeyTecher are going to interview a MedTech leader and talk to them about the critical data-driven decisions they make in their programs. Hey, everybody. Welcome to MedTech Speed to Data, episode 19 with Longevity CEO, Jesse Christopher. Jesse, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andy, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's always great to have a, a Maryland medtech company come on. So we're gonna we're gonna jump right into it. We don't do these long intros, but but I I thought the mission of longevity was worth repeating here, Jesse, and and maybe I'll describe it, and then you can you can really tell us what's going on behind the scenes there. So so longevity's mission is to develop innovative solutions for complex brain surgery. So. Where did that come from? Right. It's a mouthful, but uh, there's a lot of reasons why people will ha undergo neurosurgery. And of course, as we see a market going less invasive, there are more and more reasons still to go in for neurosurgery. My background is running the East Coast for a Fortune 300 company and one of the biggest neuro device companies. And it's a really interesting market because you are very privileged to get into the operating rooms. And at some point, you know, I realized I'd seen about a thousand neurosurgeries. And every hospital, um, a lot of neurosurgeons are trained differently and have their own protocols and techniques. And then you start realizing, okay, the companies are leaning on them for innovation. Uh, how does innovation come? And I really gravitated towards the path of innovation within my last company. Uh, but it was after really uncovering how slow the pace of innovation occurs in neurosurgery that got me out of bed. I felt compelled to, uh, to quit my job that I still loved. It was a great company. Uh, to start Longevity Neurosolutions. And it was a statistic on a TED Talk that I heard, one in five of us, of which I've verified, one in five of us over 65 will have a neurological disorder. And I've got three daughters and a wife, so you do the math. It would be a Greek tragedy if I was rich off of stock from my last company, but couldn't solve some of the issues that were low-hanging fruit. So we started Longevity around five years ago now, just over five years ago, and you know, very Americana. I, I quit my job cold turkey, but on great terms um, and went into my garage and started making mixing plastic, taking my kids toys apart and really completing circuits for this next gen of computer interface and implants that I thought that we needed. And so, I, again, I'm sure we'll get into a lot of that, but that's the evolution of the last five years of what kind of compelled me to take a risk and where we are today. Now, fortunately, with thousands of patients that have benefited. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's a, a lot to unpack there. We'll do our best here. But Jesse, I mean, that's yeah, a great story just to be bold, to just kind of stop what you were doing and the sales relationship management you were working on and just going all in in your garage. So, you know, I, a lot of our audience is, you know, either a startup medical device company or, you know, a VP of R&D who's got that entrepreneurial sort of taste, but, but not necessarily the gusto <laughs> to go and do their own thing. So they're, they're doing more of the entrepreneurial uh, thing. So, so you, you quit your job, like describe like your first, I don't know, month or two of, of being out on your own. What, what were you focused on? Well, you imagine every emotion every day, right? You know, <laughs> did we make the right decision? Was it, is it too much? Are we really going to change the world? Uh, there's a great quote by, I think, Margaret Mead that, you know, so few people have always changed the world. So there's things that are motivating every day, but also you're really up against steep odds. And so it takes fortitude and it really takes a lot of people around you. And I was really fortunate to have built a, a, an immense amount of trust over my career. And we have a saying at Longevity, trust is production over time. There's no shortcuts. I could jump in front of a bullet. 
in front of you and take a bullet. And that's a lot of production in a very short amount of time where it can give you exact change at a toll booth over 20 years and still develop incrementally trust. And it was interesting to see the ability of translation, translating that trust into the team that we needed. So a lot of people came from where I left uh, and other institutions to help build longevity into what it is today. And I think that was the most remarkable thing. So it took some fortitude, but you can't just jump into it. There's no shortcuts. You need to be humble and you need to reach out to the people that are smarter than you, better than you, faster than you, and try to convince them to work for nothing. Yeah. Okay. That's what I was waiting for. Like, there's got to be a catch here. <laughs> yeah. Work for nothing. The other um, kind of background as I was preparing for this interview that I, that I and I, we met years ago and, and I, what struck me then, it strikes me, strikes me again here now is a lot of these startups, they'll say, we need to go do the I-Corps or, you know, understand our market. But here you are after probably having dinners and buying cocktails for, for the market for, for years. So you're, you're starting out well ahead of, of most startup companies that, that maybe are trying to get a better understanding of what the market needs. Yeah, and it's interesting. So one, know your market. I mean, I've been in the industry, this particular market for 20 years, and you know, it, it's, a, it's a daunting one to enter. That's probably why there isn't much neurovation occurring because it's very siloed. Just statistically, think about it. We've got 330 million Americans, and we're getting older, and we're able to keep our bodies alive, but it's the neurological disorders that are costing us more and more in healthcare. So 330 million Americans have about 300,000 neurosurgeries a year the cost of neurosurgery to America every year is around $750 billion. It's an insane amount of money. And we're talking about all the wrapped up healthcare, not just neurosurgery. But when you start to unpack the reasons why, you really see an immense amount of opportunity. And again, you know, it's not for the faint of heart. We're, we're a small company you know, in waters with huge mega companies, very public, very global, and you know, seemingly still able to make a difference because of we're staying in our lane. So you're five years in now. Uh, are you are you getting revenue from the product? I know there's products on your website. Oh yeah. Um, okay. So describe describe the maybe the handful of products that you have on the market now. You know, we released a few products over the last few years. Um, the Invisishunt platform, which helps house various technologies within the cranium, and so Invisishunt helps with hydrocephalus. So think of pressure in the brain. Your brain's floating around in liquid all the time. And so when you have hydrocephalus, you have too much liquid, you need to get rid of it. So they put a drain in and our device allows that to be housed within the cranium. The outcomes have been fantastic. The patient feedback has been great. And we really pride ourselves on leaning into conversations with patient advocacy groups like the Hydrocephalus Association and allow them to guide our innovation. We feel like it would be borderline arrogant to tell them what what ideas are out there that they should be uh, adopting. So we really listen to our physicians and our patients. But the probably the, the most exciting family of products that have come out uh, over the last year and a half were the ClearFit implants. And so ClearFits are quite literally, imagine your skull under your skin being replaced when it undergoes surgery, when you undergo brain surgery with a clear window. There are a lot of cases where we have to reconstruct the skull, and there's a number of materials that you can use that neurosurgeons have been using for decades, you know, from plastics to metals to titaniums. And it's seeing this firsthand in my last career, it seemed like a really expensive day for the patient in terms of the real estate that's exposed. And if you're going to go in there, why not leave them with as much function as possible, as much diagnostics as possible? And it really led to, you know, this concept of longevity. So most, a lot of our implantable functional products are within the ClearFit platforms themselves. So when I talk about ClearFit, you've got two families. You've got customized family that can do anything from just be an identical skull shape or house electrodes and 
various other components. And then you've got ClearFit off the shelf, which frankly are put in very small sizes, 20 uh, millimeters to 50 millimeters to allow post-operative imaging of the skull of the brain. And why that's profound, and I'm going to get into it in a second, but imagine this, neurosurgeons are the only discipline that can't use ultrasound. Every other discipline, cardiac, have been using ultrasound like their stethoscope for now decades. And just for our, for our audience, Jesse, why can't neurosurgeons use ultrasound imaging? Our brains are protected by the attenuation abilities of our skull. So we can't uh, have ultrasound penetrate an adult skull. Some infants, you can certainly use it and certainly neonatal. Um, but for the adults, you're relegated to CT and MRI, which are both costly. And for patients, the experience is going to a strip mall or down to the radiology department. Whereas now that postoperatively, some of these clear fit recipients can use ultrasound, it's going into my doctor's office while I talk to my doctor, while he or she is imaging my brain and showing my brain to me and in motion. So the things that were really exciting now about ultrasound over the last year that we've been digging into is that unlike CTs, you can see active live brain and in motion. For the first time, we can uh, you know, chronically image a, a moving brain. And so our, our collaborators across the country and globe now have taken this and really are doing some amazing research. And so the, I'm going to geek out for a second, too, because you know this isn't your grandmother's ultrasound, right? We think of ultrasound as images of babies that we're trying to make out inside of the womb. That was my experience as a father several times. It wasn't until recently that I understood how far ultrasound has come. And so you got to think of ultrasound as an energy of three frequencies. The one we're most commonly uh, familiar with is in the mid-range 10, I think around 10. And that is the imaging, okay, your black and white images. You see some companies using low frequencies to ablate tumors, I'm sorry, to ablate parts of the neuroanatomy uninvasively, which is fantastic. So uh, companies like InsightTech are out there doing some amazing work. You've also got companies using the high-end spectrum, which now we're doing research with Caltech because that high-end spectrum gives resolution five to 10 times that of functional MRI and it's uninvasive and it's real time. So what we're saying is you can actually see with ultrasound motor function. So thought, intention to move your arms and legs. And so that's really interesting to now think of ultrasound for us as a machine brain interface. So just talk a little bit more about, I don't know, maybe your most interesting application where, you know, let's just talk about the off the shelf. I think of them as like windows, right? It's like a little opening to your, to your, to your brain. Are these like, you know, epilepsy patients, brain tumor patients? Like, I don't know, what are you, what are, just characterize that market a little bit and, and then, and then describe the ultrasound application a little bit more for that patient. Yeah. So it's a good, it's good to understand the market itself. So there's 300,000 patients getting surgery every year around, let's call it 70,000 are hydrocephalus. Those patients for longevity can receive an invisible shunt. And sometimes that's accompanied with a window. So that, excuse me, that window will allow a physician to follow the catheter with ultrasound down into the brain, image it, and see the ventricles change. They can actually watch the CSF, which is that fluid that your brain is floating in, flow through the catheter and drain out and make sure that that was a successful case. So that's one application for a large swath of patients. Another one is for tumors. Some of our physicians now in Israel and in New York are placing this window because for your minute, for your um, uh, your benign tumors, your meningiomas, those come back around, I think 90%, I'm going to check my math, 90% of the time in the exact same location and 85% over 25 years. So if you have a window here for early detection, you can monitor these, you know, benign tumors. There's an advantage there. And a, a quote that we hear all the time from physicians is time is tissue. And so that's another thing that we're really 
interested in is a lot of trauma facilities are using our windows so they can see blood afterwards. It takes sometimes even, you know, in the best facilities, a couple of hours to get a patient down to a CT scanner to get those images, to get a radiologist to read them, and then back to the physician or the staff. You know, sometimes you can actually just, well, now our physicians will at least start with an ultrasound if they have the ability and they can still get the CT scan. But that frontline imaging really can help a lot, especially when a patient has minutes to hours. Is the procedure or the implant always associated with some sort of inter- intervention or is it, can it sometimes just be, aside from the shunt, um, you know, can it be used like purely for like, hey, we're just going to study you now? So it's interesting you say that. We, we, we do have a lot of interest in, in extradural implantation. And so what our window allows is diagnostics of the brain fairly uninvasively. So some facilities are starting to talk about an outpatient procedure. You don't actually need to expose the brain. It's covered by a leather type membrane called the dura. And the dura is fairly tough and robust. So if you can un- expose the you know, small incision in the skin, remove a small window of bone, replace this very strong implant that gives you a window, put your skin back and the patient recovers very quickly. It's an outpatient procedure. So some of those technologies I've mentioned early on about the, the, the spectrum of, of ultrasound, that's where we're doing a lot of research right now. It might be, it might be a value proposition for a patient to go in and get a window so they can then receive one of the two high or low end frequencies of ultrasound, either for motor function or to ablate a, a part of the brain that otherwise they couldn't get to, which would be a lot less invasive than actually go surgically remove that part of the tumor or that motor dysfunction. Does that make sense? It does. We, and and uh, let me take a step back. This is a founder CEO. It, it takes, we, it is very important that we were very um, respectful and, and, and diligent on the patient and the understanding the circumstances in which they're undergoing surgeries. And we really, as a young company, need to listen to what's already happening. And, you know, these disorders are already teaching us so much. Um, but to your point, we do think that in the future, there is a scenario where you could be getting these windows and, and probably should be getting these windows for various other technologies. And that's, that's what makes it so fun right now for us. There's there's so much opportunity with just even this one technology, let alone all these others we won't have time to talk about. Yeah, I mean you're 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 in some ways to think about it sort of decades ahead of, you know, the the pharmaceutical applications for neurodegenerative diseases or you know, you can see a future where hey, you've got these biomarkers, you might be at risk for some future <laughs> disease. Let's start some sort of low, you know, low frequency ultrasound therapy or something something like that is kind of maybe where what you're envisioning in the, in the future is that right yeah and, and I, I hate to bucket in at one because there's probably about a dozen different projects already underway with various institutions and some of the best institutions in the world from you know Penn and Hopkins to USC Caltech uh, across the country and, and we're starting to work with children now which is very exciting and near and dear to most of us on the executive team we're all parents so how do you manage all these different initiatives it sounds like you've got you know on market off-the-shelf platforms You've got research uh, uh, relationships and partnerships and I'm sure a bunch of other sort of DARPA or something like that, you know, upfront sort of R&D. Like, how do you how do you manage all? The, and these are all important. I can see your vision here as you're describing it. But but I also kind of want to ask the question, like, how do you manage to kind of run the company when you have all these different sort of uh, things going on? You know, it's really important for a young company and a lean company like ours to have focus. So although you might hear me talking about a lot of things, our executive team is pretty focused on, you know, two or three major initiatives per year. And this year, it's just overwhelmingly teach the market ultrasound and focus on our core products, grow revenue so we can support 
all of the other R&D. The good news too is that it's exciting. So a lot of our collaborators, frankly, are eager to do the work and, it, it, and we can allow them to work at their pace because of that and it doesn't set us back. But there is, there's the, the traditional setbacks. I mean, as a, I'm sitting here as a CEO, there's probably a half dozen projects we can't fund right now and just they're the Sophie's choice of, of, our, of, our, you know, of our economy. Um, real quick on that. Uh, so clearly executive focused it certainly helps. Um, and those other ones are out there, but you're not kind of working on them actively. But can you just talk a little bit more? Um, we don't talk about this enough on the podcast about, you know, you're, you're on the, the, the frontier of this market. So it seems like a lot of your work is educating or teaching the market about ultrasound. Um, what are you actually doing there? So it's twofold, and that's a great point. It's probably the biggest uh, task at hand for the for the company is not only training ultrasound, which ironically internationally our neurosurgical community is a little more familiar with, but in the United States we have CT scanners, MRIs everywhere. So there's less of a need. But when you start looking at the numbers behind patient transports and what it means to move a patient around just to get an image versus doing it at the bedside, again the costs and the adverse events associated are overwhelmingly in favor of keeping the patient where they are and getting real-time imaging. So, you know, how do we do that? We teach the ICU team. So after our surgery, the whole team that takes care of this patient, we will go in and we'll do an in-service. We'll bring in a GE unit. We've hired some great people from GE. We've got a good relationship with GE, actually. So we'll go in and co-train them on how to manage these patients. What are the, what are the protocols? What are the front, first things you're looking at? Bidline, skull base, ventricles, is there blood? you know, complete a checklist. But it's really interesting to watch this grow grassroots from from Hopkins to NYU and some of these other hospitals that are really writing the protocols at Mount Sinai, for example, they're doing some amazing things with, you know, blood evacuation. And so we're sitting back and, and kind of watching um, watching our, our physicians lead us to the right place responsibly. And so these are, these are you, you mentioned like protocols. These are the physicians that have patients of your of longevities with implants that they can now study longer term basically right and so we have a probably threefold we've got our longevity initiative education which is on brand and you know our health our, our industry in healthcare is very regulated so there's only so much we can do and say there's um you know courses like the one i'm at today frankly i'm, I'm talking to you from the big island in hawaii from the western neurosurgical society meeting where you've got some of the most brilliant physicians and neurosurgeons in the world getting together once a year in a friendly environment, talking about what they're working on, what their life's work is on. Can we implant T cells? You know, should we be doing this one procedure invasively? And it's very interesting to see the real controversy today and, and you know, and civil way of, of, of having these conversations. And, and let's face it too, I mean, it, it, there's a lot of risk sometimes to having these open dialogues and so they, th this community needs a safe place to have that. And so, you know, we sometimes as industry feel very privileged to be able to be at places like this, to listen to that, to see if we're on the right track, or if we're listening to what they have to say. So, you know, how, uh, supporting and, and, and partnering with, you know, uh, these education societies that already meet is another great way to really further the education. And then lastly is really macroeconomically. We're working with large facilities like Northwell in New York that has 26 hospitals, Hopkins, Kaiser, to understand, you know, follow a dollar as a patient goes through the hospital system. Let's follow the dollar that, that follows them. And it's a lot easier said than done. It, in some cases, takes years, even within an institution that wants to do it. So, but those are kind of the three pillars of education we look at. That's real. That's, there's a lot of work there. So, you know, it, it brings me back to, you know, the, the, the name of our podcast, which is Speed to Data, 
and as you're talking, it's maybe a better way to frame it with, with you is sort of like the marathon of kind of educating and slowly getting data to be able to kind of point to that killer app um, that, that will, you know, skyrocket sales, I would imagine, of, of, your, of your implants. Yeah, there's a there's a couple of things now that we think will do that. We're already seeing early indications, and we've been grateful for physicians, frankly, tweeting out and, and and posting on social media some of the amazing images they're getting. So there's a good grassroots groundswell. But to your point, we also expect there will be some some real uh, you know uh, step ups in terms of adoption when we have certain standards and in indications. Uh, we're hopeful for an additional reimbursement code uh, to come next year, and uh, we've we've. We've got some great partnered physicians that are explaining the value proposition of being able to ultrasound at any point, any time, um, as well as uh, some research that will point to statistical significance around things like the Invisishunt. And so once we feel like these things are out there, again, we'll, we'll continue to, to see, you know, step ups. But to your point, I mean, we're in it for the, for the grind. I think Ray Lewis being from Baltimore, the last time we won a Super Bowl, that was our, our, lo our, um, our motto was embrace the grind. And, you know, for a company that started in a garage that uh, has, you know, really bootstrapped its funding and made it through a pandemic, been able to grow and now is internationally selling, we, we know what that means. And so every day we get out of bed and we're embracing the grind. We know it's not going to be easy. And all of the things that I'm, you're hearing me talk about, we take seriously. We don't want to fall on our face. Um, and we want to be very respectful to the patient at the end of the day. I guess what do investors ask because um, you are doing quite a bit of uh, market, you know, education here. And, and is it sort of like a tech, you know, sort of like a non-med device tech company where, look, you're building this platform. It's going to take a long time. Like what kind of questions do investors ask and how do you answer them? Yeah, it's a great question. We are very fortunate to have a, a very supportive investor group uh, through our our, 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 our and considering the size of our industry, smaller rounds. Uh, and we're also very fortunate to have revenue. So we have, you know, a path to profitability for a young company in this space is, is, is very difficult. But we also recognize there's a lot of opportunity for growth. So as I sit here talking to you, I, our board and, and myself are contemplating really accelerating what we already know is, is, is possible in, in pockets that we're seeing success. So, you know, I, that's that's kind of where we sit and, and how we look at it and how we have our discussions. It's kind of out of both sides of your mouth, but very transparent, you know, Hey, look, we're not, we might have another pandemic. So we've got plan B in our back pocket. We also know that there's a lot of opportunity. This is a, these are real value propositions for patients all over the world. And we're seeing it firsthand. We can't unsee what we've seen now. So, you know, how do we treat both of these, you know, and, and it, and it takes, really having multiple plans, uh, you know, good communication with your board and your executives. And so I feel like that's where my particular role is, 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 is most important. You know, I need to be the connective tissue between our investors and our executive team. And together we need to translate as an executive team to our employees, what the vision is. But the investors, investors, look, you know, in the pandemic, they, they want to make sure that we're not, you know, imploding, which fortunately we grew, you know, about 50% during, which is encouraging, but, you know, we're very, we, we give a quarterly newsletter uh, proactively to our investment group, which I think satisfies a, a lot of questions that otherwise, if you're not hearing from a private company, you know, in public companies you can hear about, but we try to fly a little under the radar. And most of our posts are, you know, within healthcare. So, yeah, no, I like staying ahead of it uh, from a communication perspective, particularly with your investors. That's, that's a smart move. Um, so you mentioned uh, just the word vision uh, and, and, 
on your homepage, there's a there's a picture of one of the implants that has a, a battery, a circuit board, and some sort of antenna and some sort of connection to the brain. I, are, are you open to, to talking about about what that actually is? Yeah, so I'm glad you brought it up, and I encourage anybody who listens to go and see it. That's a, it's really easy then to, to to understand what you and I've been talking about uh, in a snapshot, right? Um, and so that image you see. One of the projects we worked on, it wasn't intended for a patient, but it was really flexing some of our engineering muscles. And to date, we've got seven patents and I think 33 underway. And I have to check my math on that. But, you know, it's really about the implantability uh, and, and the conversion of the cranioplasty, you know, your bone, your cranium into a functional, you know, apparatus, you know, batteries, apps, various function, medicine delivery, uh, you know, stimulation, recording. And so what you see there, that's actually an infrared camera to look at brain and blood flow because there's no light in the brain. Uh, so there's a tiny light, there's an infrared camera and the whole thing's completely autonomous and it can emit through or an antenna to an app what it's seeing. Um, there's a number of projects that, you know, you can basically imagine implant power and function. That's what we need, right? Form power and function is what we consider at longevity. Form and power are really, uh, we consider our, our strong suits. Uh, we really, you know, look for function and, and have had some great collaborations. So again, you know, from, from pressure or flow diagnostics, we've got various partnerships out there that we're just, we're, we're proud of. So that image is repeated in several different projects underway. And there's also patients with other devices that look like that in them. So there's an RNS device out on the market that's a fantastic device that for epilepsy some patients won't have bone to anchor it to. So we'll house that within a cranioplasty implant for them and the electrodes will come out underneath into the brain. Therefore, when the patient then has to get a battery replaced, they don't actually have to have their brain exposed again. They've got a little compartment like a toy car where they pop up the plastic, replace the battery, and then close the skin over top. And it was a much less invasive procedure. So the surgeon would actually have to make an incision to open it up, right? Right. And so that's that's not a commercial product. That's just like the concept. So that particular one is a concept, but we have various products like that that have been implanted. And again, you know, there's there's a number of different functions out there. So I'm not trying to beat around the bush. There's just, you know, literally, you know, different disorders and different needs that are required from various research and non-research collaborators. So we do quite a bit of work in the drug delivery space uh, here at Keytech working with, you know, AstraZeneca, BMS and, you know, body-worn infusion pumps and um, there's a lot of talk about design for clinical trials. So I guess when you're talking about these various applications and concepts, the first step has to be, you know, creating a, uh, you know, a clinical device for use in a trial. Is that what you're, you're targeting or is it kind of animal studies? So the interesting thing, it depends on the product, right? So for our ClearFit product line, we're cleared for implantation and to have ultrasound passing through it, which is a pretty broad clearance from the FDA. So we can frankly skip animals in a lot of cases because there are thousands of patients walking around with clear fits in their heads today. And a lot of volunteers have come out and allowed us to, to map their brain or to look at various anatomies or the physicians for the normal follow-up are giving us the data so we can learn more about it. So a lot of our research is in IRBs right now and in active cases. There are the more technical you get, the more batteries, the more function, you know, the more long term we're looking. So there are some really exciting projects. Parendromics is a great collaborator of ours. And so we're really excited about what they're working on. And there's a number of other partnerships with BlackRock and, and other countries, out, uh, companies out west. You know, 
it's important for us. We look at um, we look at the functional platform that you see in that uh, picture as kind of like our F1 team. You know, Ford has an F1 team. They don't sell the F1 you know car to everyone, but trying to make it more efficient, faster, leaner, and and, and performance you know enhanced as possible spins out innovations that we then see in the Ford Taurus or the F-150. And that's what we've seen at Longevity. So while we work on these projects, some of which might not see the light of day, some might really help the masses, the innovations alone from problem solving are already you know, being seen in the market. So from ultrasound to the envisioned housing of technology. And so we're encouraged that, and we're encouraged to then internally to keep working on these. You know, as long as we have the revenues to, to reinvest in this R&D, we know that that will then spin out other low-hanging fruit of innovation. It doesn't have to be the holy grail of a complete headectomy, and now you can replace, you know, <laughs> your entire brain. So you mentioned the ultrasound again, just being cleared uh, with the clear fit. So just we touched on it earlier, but just um, for our audience, it's it's only imaging, or is it ultrasonic therapy? So it's ultrasounds. It's ultrasound signals. So that can be any ultrasound. Um, if the ultrasound is indicated for imaging, then it can be used for imaging. If it's indicated for ablation, it can be ablated. It, it's an ultrasound image. And now we've done studies to show the attenuation and what's happening to tissues to understand, you know, the safetyness. But just to put a perspective, ultrasound is used directly on the brain, sometimes intraoperatively. So it's a very safe imaging modality. It's just using literally Doppler and sound waves to, to, to hear and see and convert that into signals. All right. Um, quick pivot. Um, and again, this is an educational podcast. So, Jesse, we're looking for some advice that you might provide uh, to startup companies like yours, maybe not in your space, but interacting with FDA. What do you what do you what do you and generally regulatory bodies? What do you recommend for that? You know, it's changed since I started longevity before the pandemic. And so my advice today would be lean in. Um, the, the people that we've worked with at the FDA have been very receptive to concerns and, and questions. And we've seen that not just from our own experience, but other companies in our space that we've been talking to. So certainly as of late, um, they really take, you know, enabling innovation safely, seriously. Uh, and so my advice to them, younger companies would be approach them. I'm not saying necessarily go sit down about your specific product for a, a pre-submission. But there are a number of venues that you can go and have conversations with people from the FDA. So I highly encourage that. One of which we took advantage of was a preceptorship. So the FDA had a preceptorship with Johns Hopkins, which would send out individuals from the FDA to startups like ours, but not in the same uh, market. So we would have someone from gastrointestinal you know, uh, division. Um, but to learn, you know, the, the, the trade-offs of decision-making we were making as a young company so that they can then go back and talk about it, how do we make it easier, which I thought was very encouraging. It gave us great insight, and it let us know, too, that there's people behind the FDA, and they're very human. Most of them there are to, to, to help. Yeah, I hadn't heard of the preceptorship, but that, that makes sense. You kind of want this, like, sort of unofficial meeting um, with, with a regulatory body that, that's kind of off the books, maybe. Um, so that you can you make sure your plan is sound before you go back in there formally. Another question for you, Jesse. So, what um, you know, being a, a, an entrepreneur, like if you were to go back and and start this again, um, what do you think you would you would do differently? Man, you know, so many things just went through my head. Uh, you know, 
I heard it prior to one of, from one of our first in, investors, and it still holds true. Hire slow, fire fast. Our success is really determined by the caliber of people we've been able to bring on board. And we've been successful because we brought amazing people on board. Um, and there's still been a couple of instances where we took too long to bring someone on, um, but I had identified them. But there have been several instances where we didn't have the quite the right fit. And I think those things lingering also set us back disproportionately because of the size of our company. And it's very delicate and, and, and you know, to talk about on a podcast, but I'll just say generally, don't be afraid to overly vet the people you're bringing onto your team. Uh, and don't be afraid if you know it's not a good fit to, to have that difficult conversation. I call it the, are you happy conversation? Because if a person is not engaged in a startup, they're not going to get engaged and it's only going to linger. And that can really have a, a significant impact when your team is really stretched in bandwidth. So your culture and your team is so critical early on. I can't emphasize that enough. Yeah. I mean, I've found just in you know the handful of years, I've really been focused on building the biz dev team and some of my teammates are on the line here, so uh, <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna hear this. But you know, th- things evolve. That's like one thing when you're in the hot seat, and it's like you need to place these bets, and you don't know what four years is gonna look like. And um, you know, I try to look for like people with, with leadership qualities who, you know, are you know can can wear a lot of hats, but also know how to focus and get shit done it, when things like need to get done. And and then six months later, when things kind of pivot a little bit. You have to kind of you know change course, but you're generally heading in the right direction. That's what I look for. But I'm only running a handful of folks. I'm not running a full company, so I, I recognize the challenge where you sit, where um, where you, where you really need to kind of build out a org chart, and they're very specialized um, you know roles you need to fill. You know, but to that point, what I found as a father, as a manager, as a director, and as a CEO, that you know intrinsic value and. and um, well, let me just say, as a father, free will is a bitch, right? <laughs> Having making some, making someone doing something is almost impossible. You need them to want to do it, and so that gets back to what it makes you might maybe a good father is probably what's going to make you a good manager and maybe a good CEO because you need to hold people accountable on the mission, but you need to understand where they're coming from and make sure that they're a good fit for them. And because if, if it's not a good fit for them, you're never going to the second you turn your back or the second you can't you know do a certain thing, you, you can't expect them to do it just on their own. But I'll, I'll say that, you know, the, the core tenets of good management, like I said, are, feel like the laws of physics to me. Very simple and scale. Humble, hardworking, and hungry. You know, hire people that people like to work with that are hardworking and smart. And you've got a great team. Once you hire them, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. It's simple enough. Those are fireable offenses. This shouldn't be an excuse to do those if you hire the right people. But then look, you know, to your point, change happens and shit happens. So you need to have a very transparent, supportive team so you can weather those things together. It, if sales are down, it shouldn't be on one person's shoulders if they're doing everything they can and executing the strategy. It should be how can we help this person get better resources? So it, when it comes down to it, it's, you know, humble, hardworking, hungry. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. And then after that, it's just regular predictable communication. So every every year, in fact, the next month we have our meeting, I did a wall calendar. We put every single society meeting, every conference, every executive meeting, every weekly meeting, every team's meeting, everything we possibly can think of on one calendar so we can see it as a visualization and understand when our, our real crunch times are going to be throughout the year. But that also then sets the expectation for the entire team that then waterfalls down is that we're running on a clock here. 
And also it helps our collaborators then know, you know, we've already got our whole year planned, our budget's planning. Now, you know, my two of my favorite quotes are, if you fail to plan, you're planning to fail, right? And then- Is that Eisenhower or somebody like that? Yeah, and, and then everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face, right? You know, we've heard these a lot of times. That's Mike Tyson. So these are both true, right? And so I try to remind my team, yes, we're making this plan. Yes, we're making a wall calendar every year. And some year there might be a pandemic that's completely erases it, but that exercise forces us to work through things and sets a really comfortable environment for us to openly talk about the thing, the struggles and obstacles in each department or person's plate. So, you know, the communication and the, and the, and the, uh, the openness to talk about change to your point is really critical. Yeah. It's also helpful to have those like challenging conversations when things aren't going well, when, when everyone knows like that higher level, like plan, I feel like that's really important because otherwise people feel threatened or, you know, they just, at least that's how I operate. I want everyone to kind of know what's going on. So when it's just like, okay, this one little, little cog isn't working. Well, there's a larger wheel happening and this cog is important. Yeah. You know, it's funny you said that because by being transparent and putting the obstacles out in the open, you can help people save face that otherwise it might, it might linger. And there's a funny statistic I heard around driving, you know, nine times out of 10, when somebody cuts you off, it's for a reason that they might not even see you. But nine out of 10 times, we think that person's doing it because they just want to cut us off and be a jerk, right? So as a company, we try to, you know, get ahead of that. And, you know, there's a bunch of humans here and we really want to respect their lives too. Yeah. So one other follow-up question to your, your comment about regular predictable communication. Um, and one of the things that, um, you know, as key tech continues to grow, uh, we're trying to solve, and I'm curious how you're doing this. Just, I mean, there's like communicating the plan, but then there's like, all this information that's coming into your organization, you know, daily, that decisions are made, you know, all around. How are you disseminating information, uh, technical information, insights from UPenn and, you know, wherever else, Northwell and, you know, all these places that, that could affect some phone call you're about to make, you know, at four in the afternoon? You know, that's my nightmare is not being able to keep up. The industry we're in and the size of our company is, is, is fairly mismatched. There's a lot happening. And so I wake up every morning, you know, what's happening that, we, that I need to know, that our team needs to know, and vice versa, that we need to communicate. We try to just, you know, again, overly communicate uh, on all the platforms that you see. We've got a really good support group of physicians that keep us informed. So from text to reading articles, you know, we, you know from PitchBook, frankly, PitchBook's one of the best uh, applications that we pay for as a company. It's an investor tool, but it gives you a really good insight into the private markets. So every morning I start off looking at PitchBook. What are you looking for in PitchBook? I monitor two groups. I monitor the investors in the neurosurgery group, who's investing in neurotech. And I'm also monitoring those companies and, and what they're doing. So, you know, who's got recent FDA clearances, who's buying who, who's moving internationally, uh, what, what, I, what, what research programs have just been launched, um, who got fired, you know, it's, it's informative. So not to put a plug for PitchBook, but I, I find it valuable, certainly for raises too. It's not cheap or for a young company going through rounds of, of, of funding, uh, you kind of have a leg up as opposed to the companies that don't. It's the tool that we found most of the VCs are using anyways. So uh, the state of Maryland. So you mentioned that you're on this life sciences. Is it the life sciences advisory board? Is that right? That is right. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and what some of those initiatives are and, and how you're you're partaking in that? Yeah, it's a great group. Um, as you know, it, true to its name, it's it's trying to foster the both the economies and the and the technical skill sets of our local community in the areas of healthcare. So, 
Maryland is, is healthcare rich from literally having NIH and the FDA government facilities, Walter Reed in it state or, or adjacent to the, you know, the first academic teaching hospital in the country, Johns Hopkins to, you know, other great facilities like University of Maryland. So it's a it's fantastic state and a great fishbowl for its size uh, and frankly, proximity. We've really benefited from it as a company at Longevity, which was why I was really turned on to this ecosystem. I wanted to learn more and the Department of Commerce had this program, which was fantastic. So, um, you know, we meet quarterly and there's several initiatives, you know, interestingly coming out of COVID, a lot of it was out of whack, but mostly it's it's around job creation. It's around tapping into the general generational education that we have here. How can we take kids from Baltimore City, plug them into the communities and really teach them trades that are relevant locally with all the healthcare that's going on from the hospitals to the industry to government. Um, and there's various programs from tax incentives. One is, which is fantastic, is the Bitsy. Actually, I, I got to bite my lip. I don't. I think we're still doing the Bitsy, but it's been a great tax incentive that we benefited from, which essentially gives investors who invest in Maryland-based companies half of their investment back. So, look into that if you haven't. Whoever's listening, yeah. Um, and and so again, from proximity to just welcomeness, we, we like the state. The, the the board, the Life Science Advisory Board, is is well run. You've got individuals that are executives from, you know, Fortune 100 companies to startups like myself and, and non-executives, frankly. So it's, it's a really good mix of people that, that are volunteering their time because they care. The projects are fairly robust too. Good analysis and workshops on understanding our, our local landscape. How many bio jobs do we have? Why aren't we hiring them? Oh, well, it's because nobody knows that they're actually trained in bio skills. Let, let's teach them what that means. It's the same thing as automotive industry a lot of times. So let's let's talk about that. So, you know, those types of conversations really uncover through our, uh, you know, our own anecdotes, what we might as a team do to help the state. No, yeah, we don't have much exposure to more of the, I guess, the bureaucratic is not the right word. But, you know, the, like the, the life science, um, like the advisory board kind of things. I mean, certainly we, we know Tedco and. You know, we're, we're obviously active in Maryland, so it's, it's I need to read up on it to see if there are some events we should consider. I would say that it's they they're very eager and there's some great programs and, and being Maryland based, not to get too Maryland focused on your podcast. But, you know, like every state, it, it, we would all benefit if these groups could get together quicker. Uh, it's, it's all too often. They, it, you know, I, I found out myself there's a group working on something we totally were synergistic for but didn't meet for three years after that. How, how can we speed up these introductions? So in Maryland, I, you know, I, I hope that they, they're able to do that. And I encourage everyone to, to kind of continue their engagement with the Maryland Life Science Advisory Board if they can. Yeah, I mean, you guys came, came out of nowhere and, and I feel like that's a common, common theme, which is a good one. I, you know, every, I feel like every year, every six months, you're, you're starting to see uh, uh, you know, acquisitions and, and large uh, investment uh, sums going to these companies that are that are in our ecosystem. So it's it's great to see. Um, going back to the marathon, it's definitely a marathon, and uh, you know we're nowhere near some of those other hotbeds. But um, appreciate your work there, uh, Jesse. Yeah, indeed, it's a great team. So you know, I think we're about out of time. Um, you know, I really appreciate you coming on, Jesse, and sharing you know your story, and and you know some of the challenges you've had to overcome, and uh, whether it's hiring or focus. And I, and I really appreciate. So some of those takeaways, I'm just going to kind of share my, my highlights while, while you're here on the line. One, one thing that really jumped out at me was the, um, uh, you know, physician advocacy on this podcast. We're always talking about talk to the user, 
talk to the you know the the end, you know just focus on the end user. I, I don't think I've ever mentioned the word patient, and and I think that I mean sometimes the patient is the end user for sort of home devices, but that's how we consider it. Yeah, you're definitely a sales guy. You you, you got to keep the, the the patient happy. But um, I thought that was really really insightful and definitely something I'm gonna you know start folding into my uh, vernacular more and just talk about the patient and the physician at the same time. Um, the other the other takeaway I think was. Um, just this this whole window into a whole universe that you're opening up with diagnostics of the brain and time is tissue and um, there's there's got to be countless different sort of initiatives you could pursue and kind of a fan just kind of seeing where that where that ends up for you and hopefully you can get some um, you know some big partnerships uh, with with either global pharma or some of these universities to really accelerate some of that because people are are struggling you know what I mean like people are getting older and um, you know, there's a there's a there's definitely a need for better diagnostics, um, and not just like saving the the hour to wheel someone to an MR or CT, but like getting it faster. And I'm sure ultrasound. Yeah, you know, I don't know the details of the resolution and uh, specificity of ultrasound versus MR and CT, but you know, all of that I'm sure is is heading in the right direction. Well, thanks. It is exciting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The preceptor thing. Uh, also, I hadn't heard about. So definitely gonna. You know, throw that out to you know the, the the startup companies that that me and other people at KeyTech are um, you know interfacing with, and then also some of your insights about um, you know like leadership and communication, and um, you know just consistency was the word that that kind of jumped out at me, Jesse. Of um, you, you know, there's no excuses if you if you have to report out ahead of you know stay ahead of that bad news or or good news. So so again, I appreciate your your insights. This is not intended to be sort of like a Ted talk or anything like that, but um, we're trying to like, you know, bring it full circle here at the end of these episodes. And, and I feel like your episode at a most kind of had, had a lot of like good insights, I think um, for people trying to do what you're doing. And I appreciate the, the summary too, because I, I do think my, my personal experience has been well-rounded. Um, I don't want anybody who, you know, reads about us to think that I, or any founder should be doing at all. It's quite the opposite. So, you know, hopefully that came through. There are some very, you know, laws of physics type of management that can apply to everything. But outside of that, you really need some great people around you, which you know. Well, again, thanks for your time, Jesse. Appreciate it. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for tuning in to MedTech Speed to Data, a key tech podcast. Join us each month for more ways to get the right data faster to inform critical decisions. Find additional resources on our website, keytechinc.com. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe and please leave a review on iTunes whenever you listen. Thanks.